0: In the last episode of Radium and Roses, you heard about more of the history of the use of the treatment on U.S. military members, as well as more of the history of what happened in the 1990s as Stuart Farber worked to reveal the truth about the use of the treatment. For this episode, we're going to dig even deeper into the history of the treatment, taking you back to the golden age of Baltimore, the beginning of the 20th century, When Johns Hopkins was just growing as an institution. And based on what my mom and I found researching this in 2020, not all of this history reflects very well on Johns Hopkins, which is today one of the world's most respected medical institutions. So we'll begin with the doctor who pioneered the treatment, Samuel J. Crow. Samuel Crow was born in Virginia on April 16, 1883, a native of Washington County, Virginia. He moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where he attended Emory College and then University of Georgia in Athens, where he received his bachelor's degree in 1904. Although he initially desired to become an electrical engineer, his father, a physician, coerced him to study medicine instead. In the fall of 1904, Crowe matriculated into the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, much against his will and with no interest in medicine. So, that excerpt came from a 100 year history of otolaryngology at Johns Hopkins from the National Center for Biotechnology Information, or NCBI. So according to this article, by 1905, Crow had finished his first year of medical school, still uninterested in medicine, but fate soon intervened and directed the course of what would be an outstanding career in medicine. At the end of his first year of medical school, Crow embarked on a camping trip to the North Carolina mountains with two friends. With no maps or guides, the team of medical students trekked through the rugged terrain for several weeks with only two horses and a carriage in their company. One morning, while tending to the animals, Crow noticed that one of the horses was stiff at every joint, unable to travel any farther. While seeking aid, Crow came across an older man who directed him to Doc Halstead, who lived two miles up the road. Leaving the crippled horse behind, Crow met William S. Halstead for the first time and was impressed by his kindness and diligence to treat the animal. Over the course of the next week, Crow and Halstead would examine and treat the animal each morning and thereafter take a walk in the Halstead Dahlia Garden while talking about their own experiences. One morning, Crow hesitantly confessed to Halstead his feelings about a career in medicine. After a long pause, Halstead responded with the words that would greatly change Crow forever. According to Crow, Halstead said that medicine was a living, growing, constantly changing, and in many ways the most rewarding of all professions. The doctor, he said, must know how to diagnose and treat the sick, but he must also try to find by laboratory work and clinical research new ways to reduce the number of cripples from disease who constantly flow into our hospitals that monetary rewards are necessary only to the extent that they allow the doctor to care for his family to travel in order to acquire new ideas and to have the leisure and peace of mind to permit him to think to read and to try to add something of lasting value to medicine during his lifetime So imagine them having this conversation in the Dahlia Garden at Doc Halstead's High Hampton Mountain Retreat in the Western Mountains of North Carolina. But this Doc Halstead was one of the four founders of Johns Hopkins. So really by some twist of fate, Samuel Crow ends up at the mountain retreat of one of the founders of the Johns Hopkins Hospital and School of Medicine. While there, The course of his life would be radically altered, apparently, to set him on the path towards irradiating thousands of people, including young children. So in 2020, as my mom and I are reading this history, we look up this High Hampton Mountain retreat, and it turns out it's less than 50 miles from where my grandfather would ultimately die of the brain cancer that he developed as a result of receiving this nasal radium treatment. And that is just one of the strange coincidences that we discovered while researching this history. So he returns from this trip to the mountains of North Carolina with a new perspective on medicine. And with that perspective, he thoroughly enjoyed the remaining three years of medical school. By his junior year, he was studying with Harvey Cushing, a pretty well-known neurosurgeon who discovered Cushing's disease. Immediately upon graduating, Crow was appointed an assistant in surgery and worked with Cushing on the pituitary gland in their laboratory. At the end of the year, Crowe was appointed assistant resident surgeon and was in charge of the neurosurgical cases under Cushing's supervision. By 1912, Doc Halstead, asked Samuel Crow to cancel his neurosurgery career to become instead the head of the first division of otology and laryngology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and School of Medicine. Apparently, Crow protested because he had no experience with these specialties, but he couldn't turn down Halstead's invitation. So, because he had no experience or expertise in this field, he went to Europe and trained with two German doctors, one of whom was Gustav Killian, who discovered an endoscopic technique that in principle is somewhat similar to NRI. So by 1914, Crow returns to Hopkins ready to begin his new career as an otolaryngologist. In 1924, with funds from the Rockefeller Foundation, Crow established an ontological research laboratory to study the causes and prevention of deafness. To gain an even more detailed perspective on where exactly Crow got the idea for this treatment, we'll turn to a Saturday Evening Post article from August of 1948 in which the author actually interviews Samuel Crow. So Crowe makes the connection between deafness or hearing loss and the amount of tissue growing around the opening of the estation tube. He wanted to find some way to minimize these tissues around the estation tube openings. And so, according to the Saturday Evening Post article, he thought of radium. He talked the matter over with the late Dr. Curtis F. Burnham who was a physicist and early radium experimenter, as well as a doctor who worked with the Kelly Radium Clinic in Baltimore. As a result of their conversation, Dr. Burnham worked out the idea of a radon applicator that could be inserted through the nostrils and placed right on the spot where it was needed. Radon can be secured from radium by an extremely complicated process. Its life, compared to radium's, is extremely short The radon applicator tubes or cartridges last only about 30 days, and half its strength is gone in less than four days. But for the Johns Hopkins doctors and others who were within reach of the Kelly Clinic, it did the trick. However, the inaccessibility of radon made using the treatment difficult. And then came the Second World War. And with that came the issues of the U.S. military members in submarines and in the Air Force who were having trouble equalizing the pressure in their ears when they were at various pressures, either underwater or in the air. According to the Saturday Evening Post article, to improve such conditions, Dr. Crow suggested to Major General David N.W. Grant, the air surgeon, that a wide program be instituted to test and treat either potential or actual sufferers from erotitis. About 50 carefully selected autologists were called to Washington and trained for the work, also known as were trained how to use NRI. Since it necessitated an applicator more practical for large-scale work at varying distances than the radon apparatus, Dr. Donald Proctor of Johns Hopkins went to New York and suggested to the radium chemical company through George M. Loftus, that they make, if possible, a radium applicator that could accomplish what had so far been done successfully only with radon. After various experiments, a solution of the problem was reached, a thin radium applicator carrying 50 milligrams of radium, about $1,200 worth, in a tiny metal cylinder. Instead of having a life of only about four days like radon, radium keeps on going strong, almost indefinitely. Its strength is only half gone in 16,000 years. This is really where our research takes off in a lot of different directions. But I want to focus first on this Curtis F. Burnham of the Kelly Radium Clinic in Baltimore. I had never heard of this Kelly Radium Clinic before reading the Saturday Evening Post article, and I most certainly had not heard of this Dr. Curtis F. Burnham. What I found when looking up Burnham and Kelly was an even more disturbing history from the supposed golden era of Johns Hopkins. The Kelly Radium Clinic... Referenced in the Saturday Evening Post article, as it turns out, was actually at the home of Howard Atwood Kelly at 1408 Utah Place Boulevard in downtown Baltimore City. Howard Atwood Kelly was another one of the four founding members of Johns Hopkins Hospital and Medical School. He was appointed in 1889 as the first professor of gynecology and obstetrics. And he's known today for pioneering the use of radium to treat cervical cancers. So in 2020, my mom and I are digging a little bit deeper into this Dr. Kelly and Dr. Burnham. And one of the first resources that I come across is a copy of the Johns Hopkins Hospital Bulletin from October of 1919. This is actually a bibliography and short biography of Howard Atwood Kelly. It says... From boyhood, Dr. Kelly had been greatly interested in natural history and outdoor life and has been particularly fond of mineralogy. He spent several summers in Mexico, looking carefully into the subject of mining and the extraction of precious metals. The knowledge thus obtained proved most valuable when it was definitely determined that there were deposits of radium in Colorado. Secretary Lane of the Department of the Interior was quick to see what an ample supply of radium would mean to the people of this country in the treatment of cancer. Dr. Kelly and Dr. James P. Douglas of New York undertook to extract radium from the Colorado deposits, and Secretary Lane, with wise foresight, placed at their disposal the best brains of the mining experts in the department. Professor Joseph A. Holmes, head of the Bureau of Mines, rendered invaluable service in all phases of the project. Dr. Douglas gave his share of the radium thus obtained to the General Memorial Hospital of New York, and Dr. Kelly's share came to Baltimore. Kelly and his associate Burnham have five grams of radium, the largest supply in the world. The Johns Hopkins Hospital is under many obligations to them for their liberality in giving free radium treatment to many poor but worthy people who have needed such procedures at the hospital in recent years. So, by 1919, the world's largest store of radium was in Baltimore, in Dr. Kelly's house on Utah Place. And apparently he was liberally providing it to Johns Hopkins University for its use in the public wards of the hospital. As we've been able to piece together through our research, prior to 1915, Dr. Kelly still had access to radium and he actually traveled the world trying to gain access to more. Here's my mom describing one of the newspaper stories that we found about Dr. Burnham traveling from Vienna to acquire more radium.
1: Guarding jealously a hand satchel tucked away in the remotest corner of which was $23,000 worth of radium.
0: To be clear, That's around $600,000
1: worth today. Dr. Curtis F. Barnum, associate in gynecology at Johns Hopkins Medical School and associate to Dr. Howard A. Kelly swung off a train in Baltimore last night. No wonder if Dr. Barnum wore a furtive look and kept his eyes on the satchel, for it was his duty to deliver over his precious burden to Dr. Kelly for whom he had brought the radium from Vienna. To tell the truth, the mineral could hardly be called a burden in view of the fact that it is, it is about the size of a half a split pea. It could easily have been placed on the end of the blade of a pocket knife. If a footpad had attacked Dr. Burnham, he probably never would have realized what a haul he had made and would have undoubtedly left the mineral. Still, Dr. Burnham was omitting no precautions from the time he left Hamburg on the steamship America until the vessel landed in New York. The radium was stored away in the safe of the ship. Then the physician transferred the mineral to his satchel and kept that satchel by his side. The bringing of the the radium Uh, to Dr. Kelly means that the physician now possesses the largest amount of mineral of any individual in the world. He had already about $27,000 worth of the precious stuff. His possessions in this respect mount up to the half-century mark in thousands. While Dr. Kelly's wealth in this respect, will be apparently infinitesimal as far as the bulk is concerned. It will last him a lifetime and will doubtless be doing duty for his followers in the medical profession thousands of years distant.
0: That excerpt comes from a 1913 Baltimore Sun article. So long before Crow comes along and has the idea for the nasal radium applicator, Kelly and Burnham are already experimenting with how to use radium to treat a number of conditions. One of the most disturbing quotes that I found is from a copy of The Medical World from August 1914. It says that doctors Curtis F. Burnham and Dr. Kelly are now using radium treatment in a great number of cases in which formerly they would have done surgical work, such as hysterectomy, But Dr. Burnham also said that the treatment that they had practiced had resulted in no harm. Sterility could be produced, he said, and nymphomania could be cured. To me, this suggests that they were experimenting on institutionalized women in the public wards of the hospital, who at the time had no rights or protections. At the time, a woman could be considered a nymphomaniac for a number of reasons, specifically if she expressed any type of sexual desire. So before we had even reached 1920, doctors Kelly and Burnham are irradiating the reproductive organs of women at Johns Hopkins Hospital, unaware of the consequences, and doing so experimentally to discover a treatment for cancer. So despite these potentially cruel experiments on women— Dr. Kelly is still attributed as one of the founders of Hopkins and as a medical pioneer. Samuel J. Crow is given the same treatment. He has a lengthy biography on the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine website, which doesn't mention his history of experimenting on children or his use of radium at all. Crow, Kelly, and Burnham all died wealthy men living in the high society of Baltimore's golden age, the harm they've done being lost to the annals of history, their reputations protected by that of Johns Hopkins. In spite of their great reputation... Johns Hopkins needs to take responsibility for the damage done by these doctors and more. My wildest hope for this podcast is that it will lead to some type of accountability. But it's a pipe dream, as many people who have received the treatment have since told me. A pipe dream or not. Accountability on the part of Johns Hopkins or not. The stories of those affected by this treatment are no less important. Tune in to next week's episode to hear my conversation with a woman whose story paints an even more heartbreaking portrait of the outcomes of this treatment. Theme music for this episode is the song Mama Said by Cat Clyde.